Chapter 21 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Eric Johnson. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 21 Electric Railways, Niagara, etc. When the man in the street sees an electric tramway car for the first time, he thinks it peculiarly mysterious, even although he may be aware that there is an electric motor fixed below the car driving its wheels round. He does not have the same feeling about a horse-drawn car or a puffing engine, for the source of energy in these cases is very apparent. A cable haulage car does not even call forth surprise, as he knows of the endless rope continually traveling along in an underground channel to which the driver may attach his car and let go at will. The man in the street is more learned than the Chinaman of whom Sir Oliver Lodge tells the story, that when he first saw a cable car in the streets of Chicago he regarded it for some time with open-mouthed astonishment, and then exclaimed, No pushy, no pulley, go like mad. That the ordinary man, however, does puzzle over the electric car is demonstrated by a conversation reported to have been overheard in London between two Irish laborers. In discussing the principle of electric tramways, one of the men explained that it was the sort of fishing rod on the top that makes the business go. He evidently supposed that the trolley pole was pushing the car along in some mysterious way. It is really because the source of energy is not apparent that an electric car has a mysterious appearance. The motorman merely turns a switch, and no matter how heavily the tram is laden, off it goes. Whenever we see anything in motion, we know there must be an expenditure of energy going on. The car is expending a great deal of energy, and we know there must be a corresponding amount of energy being generated behind the scenes. The car may be miles from the source, but at the distant generating station there is much activity. The stokers are at work looking after the boilers, although their work is greatly lightened by the modern mechanical appliances, which feed forward the coal, weigh it, and then shoot it into the furnace. When we stand and look along a great row of furnaces and boilers and a generating station, and when we think of the tremendous expansive power of steam, we understand the source of energy for the cars. Close to the boiler house we find the engine room, where we see several huge engines at work, each engine being equivalent to four or five thousand horsepower. Here we see enough mechanical motion to drive all the cars in the town. But how is this power to be conveyed to the cars? Each engine is directly coupled to a large dynamo, and from these dynamos, wires or cables conduct the electricity along the car routes. If the town be a large one, it is general to have one central station where all the boilers and engines are placed, and where all the necessary current is generated. To transmit this power economically to a distance, it is necessary to have the current at a very high pressure. From this station, the high voltage current is led away to a number of different substations placed at convenient points on the various car routes. 
the large cables carrying this highly dangerous current, which is probably around 6,500 volts, are well buried under the ground. In these substations, this high pressure alternating current received from the generating station is first of all transformed or stepped down to the low pressure of a few hundred volts. To accomplish this transformation, there is no moving machinery. The current merely passes through a stationary coil of wire and induces another current in a neighboring coil. The change of voltage or pressure being obtained by there being a different number of turns of wire in the two coils. These coils are called static transformers, and their principle is the same as that of the induction coils explained in a former chapter. There is no need of a making and breaking of contact, as the current itself, being an alternating one, is starting in one direction and then in the other alternately producing the constantly changing field of influence required to set up a current in the neighboring coil. The very high pressure current reaching the substation by these underground cables has now been transformed to a low pressure, but it is still an alternating or to and fro current, whereas it is usually preferred to send a continuous or unidirectional current for driving the motors on the cars. This further transformation is easily affected, for we have only to use this current to drive an alternating motor, to which we couple a continuous current dynamo, from the brushes of which we may now lead away a convenient current for the tramway motors. This substation has not generated any of the power, it has merely altered the condition of the current to suit requirements, and the loss of power in doing so is surprisingly small. This final current is then led out by underground cables from these dynamos along the car routes. At intervals along the route where one sees a large metal box at the side of the road, the current is fed onto the overhead trolley wire. The trolley pole, which is attached to the roof of the car, keeps in touch with this bare trolley wire, and the current passes down a wire from this pole to the switch box beside the motorman. He may pass the current direct to the motor under his car, in which case it goes off at a full speed, or he may pass the current through a number of different resistances, only allowing a certain amount of current to get to the motor. By moving his controlling switch, he thus throws more or less of these resistances or coils of wire into the circuit, and he is thereby able to regulate the speed of his motor. After passing through the motor, the current is led by way of the axles and wheels of the car to the rails. It is then led off by cables at short intervals and thus conducted back to the powerhouse. Instead of carrying the trolley wire overhead, it may be placed in a channel under the track with an open slot through which a connecting rod may pass, the appearance of the track being the same as for the cable haulage. But this underground trolley wire is naturally a much more expensive system to install. There is really very little danger from the overhead wires, as they are well looked after, being constantly examined and kept in good repair. The chief source of danger is in telephone wires falling, 
but guard wires are put up right along the track immediately over the trolley wire to prevent the telephone wires getting in contact with the live wire. No doubt, when the government take over the telephones in this country, the overhead network of telephone wires existing in some large cities will entirely disappear, being placed underground, so that this source of danger may be removed very soon. Already, horse-drawn tramway cars seem quite out of date. Although London has not yet dispensed with all these antiquated vehicles, these are, however, fast disappearing, and even in quite small towns one finds a modern system of electric cars. It is almost as certain that the steam locomotive will be banished from the railway tracks. How convenient for a railway locomotive to receive its energy ready-made by simply keeping in touch with a stationary wire or rail. If desired, there need not be any separate locomotive, for the passenger car may carry the electric motor itself, just as the tramway car does. Electric railways have been built on the continent with overhead trolley wires, but engineers in this country have preferred a third rail placed near the ground to act as the conductor of the current. It is this rail, which is called the live rail, and which at the first caused considerable alarm. As electric traction becomes more common, people will learn to keep clear of live rails, just as one would avoid a red-hot poker. If this live rail danger will only scare trespassers off the railway tracks altogether, it may be the means of preventing much loss of life annually. It is not probable that the traveling public of future generations will be contented with a railway speed averaging about 50 miles per hour. At present, the businessman in London may want to see about some business in Glasgow, but he cannot afford to spend 16 hours in getting there and back. While steam locomotives sometimes attain a speed of 80 miles per hour for a few miles, the best average over a run from 30 to 50 miles is about 70 miles per hour in America and about 60 miles in Great Britain. Already, engineers are turning to electricity to attain higher speeds, and the rate of the expresses of the future would no doubt seem to us at present highly excessive, if not impossible. Already, a speed of 130 miles per hour has been attained on trial lines in Germany while one Russian engineer suggests a scheme whereby he proposes to take passengers from St. Petersburg to Moscow, a distance of 600 miles, in three hours' time, which means an average of 200 miles per hour, or more than three miles every minute. An electric railway of a novel character was shown at the Brussels Exhibition in 1897, where a train was mounted on a single rail, supported on trestles, the rail standing about four feet off the ground. The railway cars were arranged like the packs on a mule's back, part of the car hanging down on either side of the central rail in stride-leg fashion. A guide rail ran along on both sides of the trestles to keep the car steady. The train was driven electrically and attained a speed of 90 miles per hour but there is nothing to prevent the speed being greatly increased. This method of building a railway is called the monorail system. We have already seen the electrification of several important suburban railways. 
and that this subject is one to be reckoned with in the near future, is evident from the large amount of space now devoted to it in all electrical journals. It is clear that a motor placed on a train or tramway car can be kept in touch with the distant generating station, but not so with the motor cars intended to run free on the public roads. In this case, it is necessary for the motor car to carry its own source of power about with it. This is a distinct disadvantage. Not only does it necessitate the independent motor car carrying heavy storage batteries or accumulators, but these will require to be constantly recharged with electricity. For this reason, electric motor cars or electromobiles are only convenient where a number of generating stations are within easy reach, as in large cities. In this case, they are a distinct improvement, as they move along in a much less impulsive manner than does the impatient petrol car. They are also entirely free from rapid vibration and smell, and they are very easily controlled, as is clearly demonstrated in one of the illustrations in which a boy of eight years of age is seen driving his own electric motor car. If it were possible to construct an accumulator of very large electrical capacity, and yet weighing only a mere fraction of present storage batteries, the inventor would undoubtedly make a very great fortune. The subject of electric haulage for canals has attracted a good deal of attention both in America and on the continent of Europe. There are several means of applying electricity for this purpose. The canal boat may be supplied with an electric motor on board, coupled to an ordinary propeller, and the necessary current led to the boat by a trolley wire and pole in the same manner as is done with an electric tramway worked on the overhead system. This, however, is not always convenient, and it has been found that the wash caused by the boat propelling itself is very detrimental to the banks of the canal. A second plan is to have an electric tractor or motor car on the ordinary towpath, the power being got from overhead wires. This system is at work in Belgium and is represented in one of the illustrations but it has been found expensive owing to heavy upkeep. The third plan is a modification of the second one and consists of an electric locomotive running on rails along the towpath, the motor getting its current by means of a trolley pole and overhead wire. This plan is at work in the United States on the Erie Canal, and it is found that one of these electric locomotives can draw from three to six canal boats at a speed of from four to six miles an hour, and this is done electrically at a smaller cost than by mules giving a speed of one and a half miles per hour. For many years, electric launches have been used as pleasure boats on the River Thames and elsewhere. The power is derived from accumulators placed under the seats, and these work an electric motor to which the propeller is coupled direct. The speed of the launch is conveniently regulated by means of a switch, in the same manner as already described for a tramway car. These boats glide along very gracefully, being free from any smoke, heat, escaping steam, or incessant vibration. 
but they are of course dependent upon some neighboring generating station to have their accumulators recharged. Some boats carry a sufficient power to take them about 40 miles without a change of accumulators, and this distance they will cover in 7 or 8 hours, going at a speed of from 5 to 6 miles per hour. With the advance of petrol motors on board small boats, the electric launches will occupy a similar position toward these that electromobiles do as compared with petrol motor cars. Returning to the generation of electric power, we find some further points of interest. Before we can get electricity from the dynamo, we must apply considerable power in revolving its armature. It does not require much force to spin an armature round on its bearings. But when the current is once set up in the coil of the armature, it becomes a powerful magnet and is attracted by the surrounding magnet in the opposite direction to which we are rotating it. And to overcome this magnetic attraction, a force of many thousand horsepower is required, if the dynamo be a large one. As long as we can supply sufficient power to drive the dynamo, it does not matter, of course, whether it be supplied by an engine, a water wheel, or a windmill. Water power in great quantities is not very general, but quite a lot of waterfalls on the continent of Europe and a few on this island are now harnessed. The great center of interest in this respect, however, is in America, where they seem always to do things on a big scale. If we only had a Niagara Falls at hand in the center of our island, we should want no other source of energy. Even the great flowing river of Niagara enabled the early settlers along its banks to drive machinery for sawing timber, etc. But it is only during the last few years that the harnessing of some of its vast power has been undertaken on a large scale. Many generations ago, mechanical engineers must have looked on this great source of energy with envy and wished that it were possible to convey this power away to distant places of industry. Electricity makes this dream a reality. Instead of causing the flowing river to turn an ordinary water wheel, some of the water is run off into a tunnel measuring about 20 feet square. The river is about a mile in breadth at this point. It has traveled 20 miles from the Great Lake Erie, and after making a sudden leap over a precipice of 160 feet, forming the Great Niagara Falls, it makes its way to Lake Ontario. Niagara practically drains the Great Lakes of the interior, which have only a total surface area of nearly 100,000 square miles. Some idea of the immense volume of water may be gained when we attempt to picture 18 million cubic feet of water passing over the precipice in every minute of every day. This represents a power of 9 million horsepower, of which about 5.5 million are available for use. The total power of the works already constructed and in course of construction will amount to less than three quarters of one million, and yet this is a gigantic power. 
The water for the great power station is got by tapping the river about one and a half miles above the falls. The tunnel already referred to is cut with a gradient of 36 feet in the mile till it has fallen to a depth of about 200 feet, of which about 140 feet are available for use. A number of deep pits are dug from the surface, each about 160 feet in depth, and these pits communicate with the water tunnel. At the bottom of each pit is placed a large water turbine of 5,000 horsepower, mounted on a vertical or upright shaft which extends right up to the surface, where a dynamo is fixed to its top end. We have the turbine, or propeller, away, down at the bottom of the pit, being rapidly revolved by the rushing water in the tunnel, and on the top end of the shaft we see the moving part of the dynamo being rapidly spun round and generating the electric current. This means a considerable weight on the foundation of the long upright shaft, but the pressure of the water below is ingeniously contrived to relieve this. The recent extension for utilizing the falls on the Canadian side of the river will develop about 375,000 horsepower, which is about half of the grand total already referred to. The Canadian power station will distribute electricity to Toronto, which is about 75 miles distant. The current will leave the power station at the immense pressure of 60,000 volts, and after reaching Toronto it will of course be reduced to working voltages. One power station on the continent of Europe has for many years successfully distributed power over a great distance, machinery in Frankfurt being driven from a generating station and Lufon, which is 100 miles distant. The great power station at Niagara has caused quite a crowd of industries to spring up around it. There are grain mills, timber works, paper mills, iron works, engine works, and electrical industries of every description, all receiving power from the Great Falls. Large electric furnaces are also erected for producing aluminum from bauxite, and there is no doubt that ere long the electrochemical industries will receive a great impetus, and what are at present only possibilities will, by means of this great supply of electricity, become active realities. When a select committee of the House of Lords passed the third reading of the Durham County Electric Supply Bill, it was mentioned that the waste heat from the coke ovens and the blast furnaces was being used for the production of electricity and that the companies promoting the bill had been supplying power at actually less than the power supplied at Niagara. End of chapter 21